well, welcome to Living Hope Church. Yep, your kids are going down to Children's Church with Miss Melody. They can dismiss out the back. They're staying as activities in that back table that they are free to take to their seat. Yes, we're so thankful to have the Tuckers with us. As they said, we've been friends for a long time. And uh, I look back on my email today, and I think the first time they were here was February of 2018. So, yeah, so it's been a while. So we are so glad they're here. <laughs> so last week we concluded our series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you missed any of that, want to go listen to it. It is on our uh, YouTube page by searching Living Hope Green River. And so today we are going to start a new mini-series, and we're going to look at the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, if you're not familiar with Joseph's story, Joseph's story, his life is uh, crazy. His story kind of plays out like a soap opera. He goes from... Uh, dysfunctional shepherd family to prison to then running the most powerful nation in the world. And so I'm excited to look at his story. It's, it's one of my favorites, and I think it's a story that all of us can relate with in different ways. Although our lives might not see the extremes of Joseph's, we all face ups and downs throughout the years as he did. As I said, we'll see Joseph hit the highest of highs, and we'll see him hit the lowest of lows. We'll see him imprisoned in a foreign nation and then be second in charge in that nation. And again, in each of these situations, whether good or bad, the amazing thing about Joseph is he never loses his faith in God. And he's reminded throughout this that God is with him, and he responds faithfully to God. So no matter if our life is falling apart or it's coming together or filled with riches or filled with need, we can learn from Joseph. So over the four weeks, we're going to be uh, looking at the life of Joseph. We begin today in Genesis chapter 37, and Joseph is a young, uh, young man of, of 17 or late teenage years. Uh, and then when we conclude, we'll be in his early 30s, and we're going to see how God works in his life. So his story covers 14 chapters in the book of Genesis, uh, but we're going to start today in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. And we're just going to read all of chapter 37 and then unpack it together. So we're in Genesis 37, starting in verse 1. It reads, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's also Jacob, same name, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he had made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him, Joseph, off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? 
They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded down with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we just kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robes, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the, blood, the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back, to their robe back to their father and said, We have found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Jacob recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And so his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites, the, the Ishmaelites they had sold him to, sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would just bless our time, Lord, as we study this narrative, this story, Lord, and that we would see your hand and your guidance in it. God, I pray that you would help us to uh, relate with the story, Lord, and see where you are working in our lives and see your presence in our lives, even in the midst of the trials and the storms that we face. So God, I just pray over these next few moments, Lord, that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us, Lord, and that you would speak to us through the story of Joseph's life. God, we love you and we praise you. And it's your name we pray. Amen. So one of the things I love to do when I read the Old Testament is to pause and try to fit the story into the context of the whole Old Testament. Because I tend to get lost and, and get confused in the name. So I just want to give us a little bit of background of where this story fits in. And then just some background on Joseph's family. So the basic Old Testament timeline starts with Abraham. And Abraham is the father of God's people. And God calls Abraham. He tells Abraham he's going to start a nation uh, from his family's line. They're going to be his people. They're going to be God's people. When God comes to Abraham, he's an old man at the time, and it's a long story. But Abraham eventually has a son named Isaac. Isaac then has two sons, Esau and Jacob. It's another long story, but there's some family strife, and there's lots of drama, which is common in this family line. You can go back and read it. But even though Jacob is younger, he ends up with the birthright or the blessing of the firstborn. So we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob. And that's the same Jacob we have here. And Jacob here has 12 sons, and one of those sons is Joseph. So that kind of helps me to keep it straight within the family line. Abraham would be Joseph's great-grandfather. And so we're close to the beginning of the story of God's people. 
Then another thing that is confusing to me when I read a story like this is it talks about Jacob and it talks about Israel. I try to say that as we're reading it. But Jacob and Israel, they are the same person. Israel is just another name for Jacob when you read this story. That is Joseph's father. And then the other thing that is tough for me to keep track of in this story is uh, the list of Jacob's children and Jacob's wives. Uh, And if we understand this family dynamic, it gives us a little bit of grace and a little bit of understanding for the story. And so to understand why there are so many wives in this family line, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 29. And I'm not going to read all of Genesis 29, but we'll just summarize it for you. And Genesis 29 starts with Jacob being sent out from his homeland by God. And he goes out of his homeland and he runs into this beautiful girl named Rachel. And he says, I want to marry Rachel. And so he goes to Rachel's father, Laban, and Jacob says, can I marry your daughter, Rachel? you got to love what uh, Laban says in verse 19 of chapter 29. He says, well, better I give her to you than to some other man. Right? It's the ringing endorsement you hope for from your future father-in-law. And so Laban says, yes, you can marry my daughter, Rachel, but you have to work for me for seven years before you can marry her. That's a long time, seven years. He says, you have to work with me for seven years, and then you can marry my daughter, Rachel. Now, that takes some love and commitment. We're going to see this throughout Joseph's story as well, but we often get upset when God doesn't do what we want him to do right now. Uh, If he doesn't answer in a week or a month, we have a tendency to give up. But in Jacob's case, the wait was seven years. That's a long time. Just think about where you were seven years ago. Seven years ago feels like ages. It was seven years ago that I picked up and our family picked up and we moved from Montana to Green River. And so much has changed in seven years. And so for seven years, Jacob works and he waits. uh, And then he finally gets to the time where it is time to marry his love, Rachel. And when that time comes, Laban tricks him and he marries the apparently quite less attractive older sister, Leah. And so that's how he gets his first wife, Leah. And so he goes, Jacob goes, and he says, well, thanks, Laban, but I really wanted to marry Rachel. She's the love of my life. And Laban says, well, if you work for me another seven years, I'll give you Rachel. And so after 14 years, Jacob finally gets to marry his love. Right, That alone is going to create some family drama when you marry sisters and you loved one of them and the other was not desired. Right, that's the family drama, but it gets more so in Jacob's family. On top of that, so he's married his sister, Leah, who is older, who he didn't want to marry, Rachel, who he loves, who is younger. And on top of that, Leah is just, she's a childbearing machine, right? She is having kids left and right. And yet in the midst of that, Rachel is barren in the early part of her life. And so then Rachel takes matters into her own hands, which is never a good idea. And so she gives Jacob her servant, which would either be Zilpah or Bilhah. And so he has kids with her. Then he has kids with Leah's servant girl. And then finally, in Jacob's old age, he has a son with the love of his life, Rachel. And that's Joseph. Right? That is one messed up family. But it helps me to understand a little bit of why there would be this extreme favoritism towards Joseph. Joseph's mom is Rachel, his favorite, who he wanted to marry to start with. It took a long time, and he finally got a son. And then Rachel's going to have one more son named Benjamin. And when she has Benjamin, she dies in childbirth. And so Joseph and Benjamin are all that Jacob has left of his beloved wife, Rachel. And so that's part of why he's going to have favoritism towards Joseph. And that helps me at least have a little bit of grace and understanding for the crazy family dynamics we're reading of. And so the bottom line from all that is don't have multiple wives. If you're going to have multiple wives, don't marry sisters. 
and don't trust somebody named Laban. But that's where, that is where Jacob finds himself. And that's the situation he is in when we read this story. And we're going to see he doesn't handle this situation in a great way at all. So Joseph, he's born in Jacob's old age to his favorite wife, and he's the favorite. In fact, Jacob loves him. We read it so much that he makes him this beautiful, ornate robe of many colors. And I don't know about you, but I read this, and when I hear ornate robe of many colors, I think of Dolly Parton's song, and I think, who really wants to wear a colorful bathrobe? Well, again, we lose this in translation. Jacob's family are farmers. They are shepherds. We're going to see that they're pretty well-to-do farmers, but they're just farmers. And this robe of many colors would have been a long-sleeve, ornate robe. It would have been something that you did not wear in the fields. And so essentially what Jacob has done here is he has pr- promoted the second to youngest son over all of the other sons and put him into management. Joseph's no longer a shepherd. He is now the manager of his family. To put this in modern terms, this would be like buying your second to youngest son an Armani suit while the rest of your kids were working out in the field in Wranglers and flannels. Right? Obviously, this is not going to go over well because your son's no longer going to be a shepherd. He's no longer going to be working in the field in the dirt. He is wearing this fancy Armani suit. And so that's what Jacob has done here. Not only has he given this beautiful robe and, and showed obvious favoritism, he has promoted Joseph over all the other sons. And because of that, they hate him. And you can imagine why. It almost feels justified to hate him. So when I read this story, I don't know about you, but right now I am sympathizing with the brothers and having a hard time with Jacob. Then Joseph, on top of this, he starts having dreams. And in the dreams, the brothers are bowing down to him. And in another dream, the brothers and the parents are bowing down to him. And Joseph, he, being 17, he doesn't keep these dreams to himself, but he shares them with everybody. And as you can imagine, again, the hatred only grows. Verse 11, it says that the brothers were jealous of him, and his father just kept the matter in mind. And so I want to pause right here and address the first issue we see, and that's with Jacob. And I don't know about you, but I read this story, and at this point, I'm like, Jacob, you have got to do something. Like, you've got to parent. You've got to be uh, the father. Your family is out of control. You have got to take a stand. And if you go back and read more of Genesis, this is magnified in chapter 34. In chapter 34, this tragic scene unfolds. And Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is, is raped by a neighboring tribe. And Jacob does nothing about it because he's afraid it's going to affect his grazing rights. And the brothers, they hear of this, and as you would guess, they are greatly angered. And these brothers, they go back, and they essentially slaughter the entire tribe. And then they rescue their sister. And yet it says Jacob still hears of it. He hears of all this unfolding. He goes, and he gets his family. He brings them back home, but he does nothing of either of these two evils. And it's at this point that every application commentary I read pauses, and it says to fathers and parents, be involved in your children's life. Take a stand, provide structure, provide discipline, because without it, chaos always ensues. That's what's happened in Jacob's family. He's essentially been an absentee father. and As we've read, the mother's situation is absolutely crazy. The children have not had structure, they've not had leadership, and chaos has ensued. And they have rallied around the one thing that they all have in common. And that is their hatred for Joseph, and in that, their hatred for their father. And so in the absence of parenting, of leadership, of discipline, chaos ensues. And all of a sudden you have children who are running the house. And so within this story of Joseph, the first thing we see is that parents, you have to parent. And if you don't, there are lasting repercussions. And I'm going to expand this and say, leaders, you have to lead or chaos ensues. And so that's our first point. Parents must parent 
and leaders must lead. One of my favorite coaches of all time is Mike Leach. Mike Leach passed away this past year, but he had written on his wall and quoted this all the time. And the message was this. He said, you are either coaching it or you are allowing it to happen. I love that. You are either coaching it or you are allowing it to happen. We all hate conflict. We all hate discipline. We all hate when our children or those that we are leading or coaching do the wrong thing. But it is the parent and the leader's responsibility to address it. Because when we don't address it, we are allowing it to happen, and by default, we are endorsing that action. Jacob needed to step up and address the conflict and the drama in his family. Instead, he did nothing, and it only got worse, and it spiraled. This is the same in parenting and anything we are leading. We're not going to belabor this point, because just a month or so, we had a series on family and parenting. But it is critical that as parents, you take seriously your responsibility to parent, lead, discipline, and provide structure in your home. It's so critical. Bottom line, learn from Jacob. Be involved and parent your kids. Don't let them run your family and don't be absent doing your own thing. Have courage. And even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when there might be conflict, don't shy away from doing what is right because it is hard. Lead your family and your children. All right, so that's kind of the setting. we got this chaotic family. We've got a dad who, who cannot or will not lead and take charge. And, and because of this, he just doesn't understand what's going on. And so Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers, which we saw in verse 2 that this was apparently a favorite pastime of Joseph's. He loved checking on his brothers and giving back bad reports. But Jacob seems so disconnected with his family, he doesn't even understand the mess he is sending Joseph into. Joseph goes to where he thinks they are and, where his, and his brothers aren't there. And so he's just kind of wandering around in this land looking for his brothers. And all of a sudden a stranger sees him wandering and he points him in the right, right direction. And it says the brothers saw Joseph when he was a long way off and they plotted to kill him. Once again, another bright warning light that we are not in a real stable family. Uh, Reuben, Reuben has plenty of his own struggles if you want to go back and read about those. But He's got a little bit of common sense. He is the oldest. He is responsible for Joseph. He says, well, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into a dry cistern. Always compassionate brother. And so they throw him into this dry cistern, and they sit down to eat. You kind of envision this scene. They're in the middle of the, the, the Middle East and the desert. They're, they're eating their, they're sitting around the brothers. They're eating their PB&Js on, on naan, I guess. And, and they're talking, and they're just enjoying their lives, talking about their brother, talking about their family drama. And we have Joseph down in this dry cistern just yelling up at them, hey, come rescue me, as, as any little brother would do. Uh, and Adrian Rogers, he says of this part of the story, he's a, he's a, a preacher, he says as part of the story, he says, all things are not good at this moment. <laughs> all right, that might be the understatement of the day. All things are not good, especially if you are Joseph. He says it would be a mockery to say that they are. And he says the death of a child is not good, cancer is not good, drug addiction is not good, war is not good, blasphemy, it is not good. And yet he says in this, in Romans 8.28, he says, Romans 8.28 reads, We know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purposes. And so we have this story of Joseph where nothing is good right now. But we hold on to this promise that there is good happening in his life, and that's the promise we hold on to as well. Dr. Adrian Rogers continues, he says, That in the chemistry of the cross, God takes things that in and of themselves are bad, and he puts them together much as a chemist may take chemicals that in and of themselves may be bad, he mixes them to make medicine that brings healing. He says, many of us have salt with our meals. Table salt is made up of both sodium and chloride. 
By itself, sodium is a deadly poison and so is chloride. But you put them together and you have table salt. He says salt flavors food and a certain amount of salt is necessary for health and life. He says we cannot live without salt in our systems. He goes on to say God can take things that are bad and he can put them in the crucible of his wisdom and love and he can work them together for good. He gives us a glorious, wonderful promise that he will do that each and every time. We know that we have victory over sin and over Satan through the cross. And this verse in Romans teaches us that we can also have victory over our circumstances. So for Joseph, things seem bad and they're going to seem worse in the future. But we hold on to this hope that God is working good. And so the second thing I want us to see today is that God is sovereign in the good times and he is sovereign in the bad. And it's easy for us to read this story and be reminded of that because most of us, we have read the end of Joseph's story. And we know things are going to work out well for him. But when we are in the midst of the storm, we don't feel that. I'm sure Joseph did not feel like God was in control of the situation as he headed off to Egypt or as he sat in the cistern as a 17-year-old. In Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat play, at this moment in the story, the narrator steps in and he encourages Joseph. He says to Joseph, I've read the book and you're going to come out on top. Right? Unfortunately, in life, we don't have such a prognosticator. Our books are written as we live them out. But we can trust, Romans says, we can trust, the Bible says, that God is in control. Because in Joseph's life, he's sold off to slavery. His life is falling apart, but God is doing incredible things. At this moment, God is working on a prophecy that he made to Abraham in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham that his people were going to spend 400 years in captivity in Egypt. And God's at work to fulfill that. God's at work in saving his people from a famine that's going to occur 15 years down the road. He's at work in preserving Judah, Joseph's brother. And that's significant because he's at work in preserving Judah because it is from Judah's line that the Messiah is eventually going to come. He's at work in saving the people of Egypt and so many others in that corner of the world. Joseph doesn't know this in the moment, but God is absolutely at work, still in control, and that's what we can take comfort in when we face trials and tribulations in this life. The Bible is full of examples of this. And so are our lives when we have perspective. I always tell this story, I think, when we make this point. But when I was in college, my granddad had cancer, and he would eventually die from that cancer. And yet through that process, through that journey, the way he lived, the way he still loved God as his body fell apart, the way he never turned from God, we saw family members come to know the Lord because of his faith. We saw others whose lives were changed in a way that we could not have dreamed of at that time. I have cousins that are living for God now when before they were running the other way. And at the end of that journey, my grandfather was, was able to say, this was absolutely worth it. It was worth it to have cancer. It was worth it that I am dying because of the way God used it to bring people to him. Right During that moment while we were in the day-to-day, it didn't feel like God was trustworthy. It didn't feel like God was in control. But with perspective, we look back and see that he was. There were days that it felt like God was not being fair, that, that he could not be, have been farther from the situation. But the reality is God was in control, and he was using it for his good and his glory. And these examples, they are easy when we have perspective. We don't always get that. And when we're in the midst of the storm, it is hard to believe God is there, that he is present, and that he is working things for good. So if you're here today and you are in the midst of the storm, you're like Joseph sitting in the bottom of a dry cistern. You're heading off to Egypt in a, in a caravan and, or into a situation that, that you don't know what to do or it feels out of control and difficult. 
My hope for you this week is that through Joseph's life, you can take solace and know that God is still sovereign, even if it doesn't feel like it. God is still control in control, even if it doesn't feel like it. That's what we're going to look and see over these next few weeks. We're going to see how God is sovereign in control, even in the midst of cha- in the chaos of Joseph's life. And so our next point today is this, this, and that is that in the storm, God is with us, and he is trustworthy. Joseph's life story is a reminder to us that God is trustworthy even when things are falling apart. And even when things are falling apart, God is with us and he is in control. And we know this doesn't just apply to to Joseph's life a few thousand years ago, but it applies to your life and my life today if you are a follower of Jesus. The NIV application commentary says, Often we feel as though we are languishing in the doldrums of life, waiting for God to bring our work or talents to fruition. Sometimes it feels like we are lost at sea as opposed to being in the Gulf Stream, going where we think God should be. What a, what a story of Joseph. He's sitting at the bottom of a cistern and then in a, in a caravan. It had to have felt like God was never going to use his gifts and talents. It continues, but God wants for us to be faithful every day where we are, in whatever phase of life we are in. It says that our service to God is not comprised just as of a, the end result of our life, but it's comprised of the process in which we get there. God wants our faithfulness each and every day, even in the midst of the storm. When we desperately want to get to the end of the journey, we have to remember that God is in the storm and we are called to be faithful to him. Genesis 39.2, that's what we're going to pick up next week. But in Genesis 39.2, it says that even in captivity, even in the storm, verse 39.2 makes this statement. It says the Lord was with Joseph. That's quite a statement. And the amazing thing about Joseph's life is, is it's not going to be an easy road to the top from this point forward. It's going to take some significant downturns. And yet throughout it all, we are going to read this same statement time and time again. The Lord was with Joseph. And because the Lord is with Joseph, we can trust that it will turn out for good. And we can trust the same for ourselves. For Joseph, I'm sure, as we said, I didn't feel like the Lord was with him. And if we are followers of Jesus, there are times it doesn't feel like the Lord is with us, but we can trust the Lord is with us no matter our circumstance. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit indwells those of us who are believers. The Lord is with us. And we're going to look at this statement and and how it affects Joseph's life in the bad times and the good times, and the times when he has a chance for revenge. But the truth for us to hold on today is this, and that is that God is with us always. He is with us in the storms, and he is with us in the good times. So how does that affect you today? This promise that God is with you. How does that change the way we live and change our perspective? This truth that God is with us. And the final things you'll see in your sermon notes is, is how do we trust God in the storm? And we trust God in the storms through prayer and by running to him. The temptation when trial hits or the storm closes in is to run from God and to run from the things of God. But when we trust that God is sovereign, then our response isn't to run away from him, but to run to him. Because we know that he is the one that is in control. We know that he is the one that is with us. We know that he is the one that leads the way forward. Even when we are mad or don't understand, the best place we can go is to God and to his loving arms. We give everything over to him in the midst of the storm. We pray his promises of his sovereignty. We read the story of God and his control. We read his promises to us. And day in and day out, small decision and big decision, We try to live as though God is with us and be faithful in it. So in Joseph's life, he faced a significant storm this week. 
He's found himself in the midst of a dry cistern with his brothers eating PB&Js. And then we found him sold off into slavery with no hope in the future. And yet they, what we hold on to for Joseph and we hold on to our, for ourselves is this promise that God is with us. He is sovereign, he is in control, and he is working things for good. So as we wrap up today, where do you find yourself in this story? Where do you find yourself this morning? The Tuckers are going to come and they're going to close us in a final song, but before they do, let me just give you a chance to respond. First of all, the foundation for all of this, this foundation for this truth that the Lord is with us, the Holy Spirit is with us, is in relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that anyone who believes in Jesus and turns and follows him will inherit eternal life and will have the Holy Spirit indwelling them always. So have you trusted Jesus with your life? If not, would you do that this morning? And if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, and maybe you are here today and you are in the midst of the storm, you, you feel like you are in that dry cistern with Joseph this morning. Today, would you hold on to the promise that God is with you? He is sovereign and he is in control. In these next few moments, would you just pray and turn that storm over to God, trusting him to lead you forward? Or maybe you're here and, and, and you relate with Jacob and there's something going on in your family and, or in your life and, and God is just calling you to take responsibility and to lead. Would you trust your family to God and would you step up and lead as he is calling you to lead? I'm going to pray for us and, and as I pray, the Tuckers will come and, and then they will lead us in a final song and then we will close us out. Dear Lord, we thank you for this simple but just incredible promise. This simple but incredible promise, Lord, that you are with us. That no matter what life looks like, no matter what we are facing, we can know with certainty that you are with us if we are yours. And in addition to that, Lord, we have this other incredible truth and promise, and that is that not only are you with us, but you are working all things for your good. Right, we may never see that. We may not know how that's going to play out, Lord, but we can hold on to that truth and that promise, Lord, that you are there and you are working it for good. God, I pray that, that for someone here that might be walking through that storm today or, or maybe even life is good or just the future is unknown, God, would you give them peace? Would you help them to feel and know your presence this morning? Would you help them to turn whatever it is over to you, trusting that you are there and you are working it for good? God, I pray that as we work through this story of Joseph, Lord, that you would make it real to us, that you would help us to apply these truths to our lives, Lord, and that we would trust you all the more. God, we thank you that you are good. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are present. And Lord, we thank you that you know the way forward. God, we love you and praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen.